Okay, we're walking through this wonderful book, a book that we may not want, but a book that we need. You know, there's a difference, right? This is a book that may not feel good when we read it, this book called Ecclesiastes, but man, it's a book we need, a book that nourishes, it brings some heat at times, but it's also so good for our souls. I appreciated last week, talked about, do you smell smoke? Are you smelling fire? We talked uh, about maybe needing some prayer, and so we spent some time praying for one another last Sunday, and for some of you, that might have been a new thing, um, but it was something that was good for us to be able to just respond to maybe a moment that God might have had for some of us, and so uh, we, we might do that. We will do that again in the future um, to pray for one another, man, we need, we need that, and so I got two main thoughts for us this morning, then we're going to dive into the text. Um, the first is going to be around the, the illusion of power. We can have this illusion of power or this illusion of control that God is desiring to free us from. And the second point that we'll get to in the latter half is, is a hope that we can find in divine justice. A hope we can find in divine justice. And so Solomon is going to hit us at both, hit us with both of those, and I'm just going to read along and we're going to talk a little bit about it. And so Ecclesiastes chapter 8, we're doing 8 this week, we're doing 9 and 10 next week, we're doing 11, 12 the following week, and then we're in Advent. So Ecclesiastes 8, verse 1. Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's troubles lies, deep, or d- lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. So he provides wisdom, starting out, Solomon does, uh, about interacting with a king. Um, So because we're not British, we're going to focus on verse 8 and 9 in particular. We could spend some time there, just we're limited in time. And so I want to focus specifically on eight and nine. And so he engages this, this illusion of power, this idol of power. Three times in eight and nine, he mentions this word power. When I think of an idol, I don't know what you think of when you think of an idol. When I think of an idol, I think of Hinduism. Um, for me, I lived in India for three months back in 2007, 2007. Uh, and I remember one day I was sitting on this bus. I was going into the city of Bangalore uh, for something to eat. And the bus was supposed to leave at like 9. It's now like 11. This is just how they roll. Uh, Just different. Not better or worse, just different. Uh, And so sitting there on this bus, when you think of like what a bus filled uh, with these beautiful people from India smells like, that's what it smelled like. And I'm just kind of sitting there, no AC on. It's just hot. And I look out and I see this individual at this tree. And at this tree's Uh, burning some incense, and there's this little piece of wood kind of on this little pedestal of this tree, and he's kind of wafting this incense, and he's worshiping an idol. And so that was kind of a new moment for me, 
of what my mind typically goes to when I think of idol worship. But that's just an outer manifestation of idolatry. We all feel idolatry within our hearts. Idolatry is a common reality. It is the most core common reality that all humans experience. Um, Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, which man, I couldn't uh, uh, encourage you uh, to read more, uh, this book, Counterfeit Gods. Uh, But in it, he talks about idols. And uh, in it, he says, the question is, what is an idol? And he says, it is anything uh, more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give uh, you what only God can give you. And so an idol is something good, something even beautiful, something good that becomes ultimate to us. It's a good thing becoming ultimate, something that if we lost it, we would feel like our world was crumbling. That would be what an idol is, and we all have different idols in our lives. But if we have that thing, we can feel a deep sense of value, a deep sense of meaning, a deep sense of purpose, a deep sense of security and significance. Uh, There are several kind of root idols um, that historically the church has kind of seen as kind of core idols, and four in particular. Uh, The first would be power. And that power is a longing uh, for influence or recognition. The second is control, a longing to have everything go according to my plan. Third is an idol for comfort, a longing for pleasure. And then fourth, a longing for approval, a longing to be accepted or desired. And so Solomon puts these these kind of two first ones in the same category of power and control. They can kind of wear the same hat. Uh, Power, in one sense, is a longing to have influence over and control over people. It can be a desire. I want to control, if I can control people, my children, my parents, my friends, if I can just control the outcome of their choices, I would feel a sense of satisfaction and security. That would be an idol. And likewise, a desire for control, which would be the same desire for control, but it's not for people, it's for circumstances. If I just had this go my way, if I just had, whether it's vocationally or other things, if I had it go my way, I would feel a sense of security and safety. It's looking for security in things, people or circumstances, instead of in God, allowing those things to rule and reign. So both require you to be in charge. This desire for power desire for control, is a desire for you to be in charge, whether it's over people, whether it's over your future, whether it's over your circumstances. It's a need for control to feel security. It's at a baseline, a longing for security that we're seeking after. And Solomon, in a way, he puts his arm around you and says, listen, power and control, like everything else, is like a vapor. And you think if you just had it, once you had it, you would feel security. But then you get it, and it's like it disappears from your hands. You're not going to find what you're looking for. See, we all yearn in one way or another to be in control. When we seek to be in control uh, over people and they don't respond the way we think they ought to, we, we end up can responding in anger. Or when we seek to control our circumstances and they don't turn out the way we want, we can respond with anxiety or worry. So power and control, we want it, we think we need it, and yet it promises things to us that it will not deliver on. 
And so Solomon knows this, this search for power and control, and he understands that these things will erode our souls, and he causes us to be mindful of the fact that we cannot have power. You know, it's interesting, a lot of Ecclesiastes is a simple response to the design of the Garden of Eden. Like, he's trying to remind us that we're no longer in Eden. And so in Eden, power was given to God and to God alone. If you go back to the garden, you go back to uh, Genesis 1 and 2, we see this, this utopian moment where God was dwelling with man and woman. The image of God dwelling with man in the cool of the day they walked. It was this beautiful moment. And God was the one who was to be the design. He was by nature the one who was to be in control and the one to have power. And we're called to manage God's resources, but not uh, our, our heart motive, the design, was to trust in God who was in control, not to carry that control. But humanity has forever been fractured because we have rejected God and his guiding power over us. So since the garden to today, we have been rebelling against God as the one who's in control, the God who's the one who has power, and we've been yearning to have that power, to take that control from God and to carry it to, for ourselves. Instead of trusting in the one who has control, we've wanted to take that upon ourselves. And every time that happens, the fracture deepens and deepens. So we too feel the effect of this and are tempted to control and seek to have power from God. See, we think we are where we are because of our plan. We can oftentimes, if we have the temptation to have control, we or have the temptation to be one of power uh, over others, we can think that we've gotten where we are by our own ingenuity. Tim Keller goes on and he says this, I believe the quote will be up here. It says, people at the top are eager to attribute their position to their own intellect or savvy or hard work. The reality is much more complicated. Personal connections, family environment, and what appears to be plain luck determine how successful a person is. We are the product of three things, genetics, environment, and our personal choices. But two of these three factors we have no power over. We are not nearly as responsible for our success as our popular views of God and reality lead us to think. See, we think we are far more in control than we actually are. And we can search for this illusion of control, this illusion of power in our lives, but it's simply just a black hole. It is a relief, friends, to remember who God is, and it's a relief to remember who we are. We're responsible to steward, for sure, but we are not nearly as in control of people or of circumstances than we want to admit. And Solomon reminds us, and we're not in control. And death will come our way. We're not in control of the things that are before us. But man, we can trust in the God who is. And that's the beauty of everything under the sun. Solomon, over and over again, everything under the sun is vanity. But it's this faith that's been given to us that allows us to see that beyond the sun, there is one who rules and reigns over all things, and we can trust in him who has control, and we can lean into him with our lives. See, he can be trusted with our lives when times are easy, and he can be trusted with our lives when times are hard. 
It is in his gracious rule. It's in trusting in his gracious rule beyond the sun, knowing that he rules over everything under the sun. It's in his gracious rule that frees our hearts from control and from this power. See, there is a God, but we are not him. You are not in control. You can't be in control. You are but dust, and to dust we shall return. Yet he holds all things together, and he can be trusted. We are not just invited to trust in God, but we are invited to trust God. Friends, you are invited to trust God with your life. And it's not simply something you do when you pray a prayer, but as we walk through the journey of life over and over and over again, we repent and we trust yet again another day in a God who cares for us and a God who rules over us and a God who loves us. And so we don't have power. He does. And we can trust him. And Solomon continues. And he says this. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is vanity, there's a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done, under, or done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun." However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. So in the second half, uh, Solomon begins to question divine justice. He has a cynical kind of approach. He says, where is God in all the mess of life? He says, you know, good things happen to people who do wrong, and bad things happen to people who seem to do good. So the question is, what do we do with this broken world? Like, how do we respond to this broken world? How do we respond to death? How do we respond to corruption? How do we respond to sorrow? You know, in verse 10, he says, uh, the wicked were at one point praised, and yet they will die. It's this this lament uh, of this life. And then in verse 14, it says that he talks about how it appears that the wicked flourish and the righteous suffer. You know, we can feel this in life. We, we hear s- stories, whether it's on social media or on the news, of, of just catastrophes, horrific stories of people. And it's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that that happened. Things of pain and sorrow and hardship. And life's hard. Solomon's telling this over and over again. Life is hard. Life can be confusing. This is the clear message that we find in Ecclesiastes. 
And we have little to do to be able to change that narrative. Oftentimes, suffering and pain like this will either draw people closer to God or it will repel people from God. You know, Solomon, he's, he's kind of been down a journey, and typically, specifically in chapter 2, and he talks about this, this, uh, the problem of pleasure, how you can gain the whole world and your soul can be hollow. And yet here he's bringing up the, the problem of pain or the problem of evil. Like how do we make sense of a world that has horrific and painful things take place with a God who is good? Like how do we rectify that? Like how do we deal with that? How do we like engage those realities of God who is good amidst horrific, painful things? This is, this is when it's important to remember our vantage point. You know, we can assume a lot about our vantage point. We don't have a full picture. We actually can't see very much at all. And this is what Solomon means when he says vanity. It's this hevel, like you can't understand the world. It's like you try to grab the fog and you can't. I mentioned this several weeks ago. I'll mention it again. St. Chapelle in, in Paris is one of the most beautiful stained glass windows in the world. Again, we talked about this several weeks ago. But all of these stained glass windows are actually made up of broken glass, and it's this beautiful uh, tapestry of stained glass. And it's easy if, from afar to look at that and say, that's just beautiful. I mean, you go up extra close to that thing and you put your eyes like six inches from that glass, all you see is shattered glass. And for us, we look at this from afar, and this is God's view of the world and history and the future. Our view is one that's only six inches from the shattered glass. All we can see is a very limited view of life. We only have the vantage point of the broken glass. And sometimes we can't see the beauty that has been created because we can't step far enough back. Our view is so limited. We don't know a lot. That's why in the sorrow of another, we, we sit and we don't necessarily give all the answers, but we sit and we mourn with those who mourn. See, we may not be able to see well. Our vantage point may be poor, but there are a few things that we do know that in the conversation of justice, we do know. See, because of Jesus, we do know a few things that can clarify our vantage point. In the coming of Jesus, God taught us a good bit about himself, specifically at the cross. And there's three things that we know about God, regardless of what's happening in our lives and the vantage point that we have. The first thing that we know is that we know God is just. He will not ignore sorrow or injustice. We know that. 12 and 13 speaks to this when he says, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God. We know that the wicked will be punished, that he will judge the living and the dead. We are not the judge of those, but we can trust in a God who is just. He is just. That's why he came. He came to deal with injustice. The injustice for our sin before God and injustice for our sin toward mankind. And all who trust in God's provision are freed. You either carry the worst of you and you give it to Jesus. You either take the worst of you and you place it on Jesus and he deals with it or you carry it when you stand before God. We know because of the cross that God is just. He came to bring forth justice. 
we also know, secondly, in our vantage point, as we only see shattered glass, we know he's just, we also know that he's merciful. It's in the cross and the resurrection that he's able to extend to us something that we don't deserve. And it says over and over again in the, in the Old Testament, the Lord, Lord God, he's gracious and compassionate or merciful, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. We know that God is merciful, culminating in the cross. He doesn't give us what we deserve because he gave us what we deserve on Jesus so that we could go free and we could receive mercy. God is just and God is merciful. The cross tells us that God is just. The cross tells us that God is merciful. And thirdly, we also know that God is actively bringing restoration. So the beauty as we talk about the pain of injustice and uncertainty of why things happen and things don't happen and why good things happen to those that don't deserve it and vice versa, and we know that God will bring forth, resurrection, uh, bring forth restoration. The resurrection reminds us of this, that he rose again. He swallowed death, that he will come again and restore everything. True, true restoration. He's going to make really sad things come untrue, like he is. There will be a day when he makes everything that is sad new. He will restore all of these things. He will right every wrong. He will heal all who are hurting. He will wipe away tears and he will restore this world. That's why like the gospel is actually really good news to a world that really longs for this hope. Like our world really longs to see this thing done right, for restoration to really occur, for those that are bringing forth oppression to be dealt with, for those that are in pain to be brought up. Like our world longs for that, and it's not gonna happen until Jesus splits the skies and he comes again and he swallows death and he reigns as the king above all kings. No mere man will do that. But we long and we hope and we herald this to the world, that there's a hope that you long for that's actually found in Jesus. It's not just some fictional story. It is the hope of the human heart. See, the story of Ecclesiastes is a reminder that we are not yet back in Eden. And regardless of who we vote for, it ain't going to bring it back full. It's just not. It's we're going to stay in this place of brokenness, and we're going to try to bring forth the kingdom some here and now, but it's not going to fully come until Jesus comes again when he restores this place. And again, I've mentioned this a few times, but I'm going to mention it again, that there is truly in this day an evil sorcerer in this world, and we really are under enchantment, and there really is a noble prince who has broken the enchantment. And there is a love with which we will never be parted and death and sorrow and injustice will be done away with through that prince. Every Disney story, every Marvel story is but a shadow pointing to the reality of Jesus coming and restoring all things. And that's what the message of Jesus is all about. And that's the hope that we have here. See, what Solomon didn't know, we know. This is the great hope of this world under the sun. It is broken. It feels like vanity, but it won't always be. The sovereign God who created all things wrote himself into our story, and he sent himself to suffer for us, to promise one day that he'll wipe away all of the tears and he'll bring forth hope 
It may feel, as you stare six inches from that shattered glass, it may feel like God overlooks. It may feel like God is aloof. But we know he isn't because he's Emmanuel. And his name is Jesus. So as Christians, we zealously desire the end of evil. We pray for the ending of 10,000 injustices that we experience in our day. We long for the coming kingdom in full one day and in part now. But we look forward to that day when Jesus comes with that tattoo on his leg and he splits the skies. And I got to tell you, sidebar, we're actually thinking about going through the book of Revelation next year. And this is all about that future day. Andrew might call me out if we don't do it next year because he likes to do that. But man, this is the hope. This is the hope that we're longing for, where evil is dealt with, where death is dealt with, when Jesus reigns as king forever. And Christianity is a forward-looking faith. The celestial city that Paul Bunyan talks about, or John Bunyan talks about, uh, is not far off, that we're looking forward to. There's this momentum, this driving urgency as we look forward to that coming day where he restores all things. We don't just believe in God, and we believe God. Though we may feel out of control, though we might be yearning to have power that we're never going to have, we can trust him. Though life may appear very broken, and at times life feels very broken, he has a plan, and we only see the shattered glass and we, we're never going to have a full vantage point on this side. But we can trust that he's working things out. We can trust in it. We can believe him in it. We have the opportunity to let go of our control and to trust God with our lives. It's the invitation that we have today to let go of control, to let go of power. Say, man, I, I want to trust you with my life. And to let go of the, our vantage points and kind of judging God for why things aren't happening the way they should be happening with our lives and saying, God, I, I accept. As painful as this moment might be, I don't get it. And there's really not answers that we can have, but I trust that you are in it and that you're going to work something for good. And I trust you. That's what we want as a community. I wanted to end our time praying a, a liturgical prayer in this regard, just a reminder of our sorrow and grief that we feel and letting go and trusting God. And so for you, um, this might look like just closing your eyes and, and, and listening. For you, you can read along. If you want to read out loud, you can. But we're going to read. I believe there will be a prayer up here. There, there it is. Thank you, Nick, for all you do, brother. Appreciate you responding to my emails late on Sunday morning when I change things up. Um, Let's read this together as just a reminder of God, who's Father, who's aware, and he will bring all things new. Father, we come to you just as your son did, with our griefs and sorrows over the difficult things in our lives. We are grieved over the loss in our lives, losses of unborn babies, of friends, family members, and dreams. We grieve the injustices that have haunted us and persistently pressed on the bruises we have from living in a broken world. We are sorrowful over the relational difficulties that plagued our lives, marriages that have been wounded by broken trust, 
addiction, insecurity, anger, over the strains of caring for aging parents, over the desire for a spouse whom we haven't been given. We are exhausted, Lord, and often we don't understand. We are also exhausted by the physical and mental troubles we face, anxiety, depression, disease, and disability. We grieve it, and we confess that sometimes we struggle to see where you are in the midst of these things. And all of these things, Lord, we also acknowledge that many of our trials have been consequences from our indulgence to sin. We've sought other lovers, and they have betrayed us. Our sin makes us miserable. We often feel trapped in it. And as we feel filled often with disappointment and sorrow, we don't grieve as those with no hope. All of it has been borne by the ultimate grief bearer on our behalf. Because of his atoning work, we experience salvation amidst sorrow, but also trust that one day all our sorrow will be wiped away when Jesus restores our broken fellowship. We have great hope because of him. So we submit ourselves to you just like Jesus, trusting your goodness and relying on your spirit when we are exhausted. We don't just believe in you, we believe you. We believe you when you say that all things you give us are for our ultimate good and mysteriously for your glory. Help our unbelief. Strengthen us in Jesus' name. Amen. Father, we surrender all of our lives. I know that this text and these conversations can strike a chord with some of us more than others. And I thank you that you're with us, even through the valley of the shadow of death. You're with us. Your rod, the protecting mechanism in your staff, that, that gentle reminder, comfort us. Father, we thank you for your goodness. Lord, remind us that you're with us. As we walk through this life, we're not alone. Help us to remember in plenty or in little, for better or for worse, in the good times and in the bad, you're stable and we can trust you. Draw near to us, Lord, in Jesus' name.